Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. I pray that what you have for each one of us uh, would be clear to us. I pray that it would be you speaking through me and not me, because my opinion is worthless, and your word is exalted even above your name, Lord. So I pray that it would speak to us and that we would value it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Last week we did chapter 1, and what we saw in chapter 1 is a woman who went through tremendous hardship, especially in those times. She was barren, which was considered a great uh, taboo and looked down upon in those days. And yet God used that hardship to bring her to a place of remarkable trust in his will and what he had for her. Um, she gave birth to Samuel, who was one of the most pivotal people in the Old Testament. Uh, he began the school of the prophets. He was not the first prophet. He was not the first prophet. Am I not talking loud enough? He was not the first prophet. But... Uh, he began the school of the prophets, and he was pivotal in the Old Testament. Chapter 2 begins with Hannah's song of worship. When we end chapter 1, we see that it says, And he, or they, worship the Lord there. Now this song is Hannah's song of worship. And we're not going to go through it line by line, but we're going to go through some of it. Now, this song is... Very important in Jewish culture to women. Um, many of them memorized it. Hannah was an example of a godly woman with everything that she went through. It's actually repeated several parts of it in Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. In fact, they call Mary's prayer her Magnificat. That's what scholars call it. Now, this is technically Hebrew poetry, but unlike some of our limericks and rhymes, their poetry does not rhyme. And it does not even rhyme in Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew poetry has more to do with rhyming ideas than it does words. So when you look at some of the lines, you'll see that she will say, God is great, and then explain how God is great in different words. So they rhyme ideas and not words. So let's begin in verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Now you need to keep in mind, uh, since we're taking a break in between chapter 1 and chapter 2, that she is at a place where she has just dropped off Samuel to Eli. He's probably about three years old, and she is giving up her firstborn son to God, and she's not going to see him but maybe once, possibly twice a year. And she's rejoicing in the Lord. She's not rejoicing that she has to leave him. She's probably very heartbroken. But she's rejoicing in the Lord because she trusts in him. Now, there's going to be times where we don't want to give things up. And I'm sure that this whole time she had been pregnant with Samuel, up to the point where she gave birth and she weaned him, which is probably four to five years, she's joyfully dreading this day. Because she had received the promise of God of a son, yet she's going to give him up to the Lord to serve the Lord all his life. And there's going to be times where God asks us to give things up. Maybe they're very important to us. But sacrifice will always cost us something. 
And it's not that we're rejoicing in the loss, but we're rejoicing in the Lord because we can trust him because he knows what's best. He knows what, he sees the big picture. Uh, Philippians 4.4 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. In fact, Philippians is the book of joy written when Paul is in a dungeon in Rome tied between two guards. Now she said, in the Lord, my horn is lifted high. The horn in scripture is used as a picture of strength. This is because an ox and a steer, uh, its strength could be expressed in its horn. And so that's what she's speaking of. And she's speaking that the Lord is her strength. And this is why she can rejoice. She says her mouth boasts over her enemies. And this is most likely a reference to Peninnah, who was the other wife who always ridiculed her, and we see that two or three times was done in chapter one. So she's rejoicing in God has given her vindication. Now, verse two, this is one of those Hebrew rhymes. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. And this is called repetitive parallelism. Don't you expect, I don't expect you to remember that because... After today, I probably won't remember it either. But to say the Lord is holy is to say that he's completely set apart, that he's unique, and he's not like any other. So she says, there's no one holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. She's being repetitive. She's parallel. She's rhyming ideas. Only she's saying it in different words. Then she says, there's no, no, I'm sorry, nor is there any rock like our God She's again saying the same thing in different words. So she's repeating it two or three times, this idea, how awesome God is. And she's not just saying God is awesome. Like we would say, that player made an awesome move. I'm comparing him on a human level. She's saying God is in a different transcendent level than we are. We compare each other as to what we can do, our skill level. We go, oh, wow, Tony Hawk can do a, I'm not a skateboarder, it was a 360 something or other. It's really impressive, whatever it is. I can't do it, but I go, oh, that's awesome. But God is infinity above what that awesome is. And that's what she's trying to convey here in the Hebrew. That doesn't always transfer so well in the translation. Verses three through eight. Do not keep talking so proudly, proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The, bow, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On him he has set the world. Another part of Hebrew poetry is contrasting ideas, and that's what she's doing here. She's contrasting humble and proud full and hungry, barren and fertile. 
death and life, rich and poor. So she's contrasting these ideas and she's saying God is sovereign. She's again comparing it to the first uh, part of her song. There's no one like the Lord because there's no one who can lift up and raise up, lift up and bring down like he can. Verse 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the first place in the Bible where we have a reference to the Messiah as the anointed, and it's mentioned by Hannah. It's right here where she says, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the Messiah. She applies to him that epithet, Messiah, which is also in Greek, Christ, and anointed in English. Um, David, Nathan, Isaiah, Daniel, and a lot of succeeding prophets take this title and they expand on it in further prophecies down the road. Verses 1 through 10 is her song. Verse 11 begins the sin of Eli's sons. Now, they're mentioned in chapter 1 just once. And here's where we're really going to expand on what they were doing wrong. It says in verse 11, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Verse 12, we'll get to them. Um, The boy ministered before the Lord, Samuel. The Living Bible translates it this way translates it this way. And the child became the Lord's helper. So even though he was very young, again, probably three, maybe four or five at the most, he could still minister to the Lord in some way in the tabernacle. Now, there was obviously age-appropriate things he could do. And I can't completely imagine this. It's difficult because he's a boy and boys are mischievous. And I know this by experience. He's, he's probably close to Merrick's age, and Merrick is almost four. And again, I don't know his temperament, but speaking from experience, if you only knew how often in our house you hear another child yelling Merrick's name and him running out of the room and saying, it wasn't me. I, I'm wondering how this worked, but age-appropriate things that he could do. And I'm sure he wasn't sacrificing bulls. But at his skill level, what he probably did was maybe setting up the lights in the tabernacle, maybe laying out the clothing for the priest to put on, maybe learning music, and probably um, being trained from a young age to memorize the scripture because a lot of the priests had the scripture memorized. There wasn't very many of them, so they took it to heart and they memorized it. Um, and we, do, we should be doing this today. Um, there's a lot of times where we go, oh, they're young. They should just be able to play. And that's true to an extent. They should enjoy their childhood. But at the same time, they should be learning the responsibility of what God calls them to do, of learning things. When our kids were little, well, they're still little, saying, when our kids were younger, Mariah specifically, she desperately wanted to help with chores. But at two years old, you don't do dishes very well. And I wasn't going to let her do that because I like to eat off clean plates. 
But we, she had these small washcloths that we would wash her with. So we'd do the laundry, and we would let her fold these little washcloths into a, a square, and we'd let her put them away, and she got very good at it. And we go, okay, well, now that you can do this, you're going to take this dress now, and you can hang up. Here's all your little hangers. And she would hang up her little dresses on the hanger and set them aside, and we would hang them up. Um, and different things. And we started with that, and now she's... I mean, she does dishes, she does laundry, she makes simple dinners, she's, and she's 10. And she's gradually building on these things. And she's not the only one. The others are doing the same thing. Although it's harder with some of the others, it's still, it is still possible, and we're still working towards that. Um, but even in church, um, the 4th and 5th and 6th graders, they help with the donuts. Or there's something they can do. When I was ushering here, Many years ago, I would bring my three oldest, and they would usher with us. Um, we would get here early, and we would sweep up the trash, and they would love to sweep up the trash. They'd go around with Steve and that little garbage picker and pick up the stuff with Steve, and they love doing that. And opportunities for them to serve, seeing that it's possible to serve the Lord just in the simple things. It doesn't have to be a big thing. You don't have to stand up here and talk to people. Just doing simple behind-the-scenes things is serving the Lord in any age-appropriate way. Of course, we need to make sure we're excited about serving the Lord and it's not a burden. Otherwise, they won't want to do it. But it should be exciting anyway. Now, we read this about Samuel. Verse 12, we get the contrast. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. It says the sons of Eli were scoundrels. Now, the literal Hebrew is sons of Belial. Belial was a pagan god, and essentially this means they were worthless. They were wicked men. And this is significant considering they were next in line for the high priesthood. One of them was. And it says they had no regard for God. This means no knowledge of God in a personal, practical way. They may have known who their father was serving, but it didn't mean anything to them. And Knowledge of the Lord is not a genetic trait we can pass on. I have to teach my kids about the Lord verbally and practically as I walk my life, but I can't pass it on genetically. And they didn't know him for themselves. And speaking personally, it can be difficult if you're raised in the church to come to know the Lord because you see how your parents live. Now, my mom is a Christian. Um, She's been a Christian since she was in high school. My dad is not a Christian. So I had this dualism in the house where my mom would teach us one thing and my dad would live another. So we had this, this contrast. And I knew my mom knew the Lord. She prayed for us all the time. She would pray with us before bed. She listened to worship music. I remember she would listen to Keith Green and Amy Grant and a few others that were around at the time. And I grew up listening to those people, so I knew who they were when I actually became a Christian, when it became real to me. But I did not know him myself personally until I was 16. And we have to know him ourselves in that personal relationship. And so here we have two priests, ministers in the tabernacle, and they don't know God personally. And yet, they're supposed to be ministering. And we know from Scripture that the same is going to be true today. There's going to be those who claim to know God who are going to be in the church ministering and yet have no true knowledge of him in the first place. 
Paul the Apostle, who is probably the most knowledgeable book-wise and scripture-wise of all the apostles, describes in Philippians what the Christian walk really entails. I'm going to read it to you in two versions. Philippians 3.10 in the New King James says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, NIV says it this way. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That I may know him or I want to know him is the Greek word gnosko. And that's to know by experience. It's not the book knowledge. It's I know him. And it's not the same as knowing Jesus' historical life. It's not the same as knowing what he taught. It's not the same as knowing his moral example. It's not the same as knowing what he did. I can talk to any number of non-Christians at work and they say, oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross. It doesn't mean anything to them. And we can say we know someone because we recognize them. We can say we can distinguish them from someone else. We can say we know someone because we may be acquainted with them. Maybe we've had a brief conversation with them here or there. How's the weather? We can say we know someone because we actually do converse with them. We're on speaking terms with them. We can say we know someone because we spend time in their house with them and their family. And we can say we know someone because we've committed our life to them and live with them every day, such as marriage, sharing circumstances in a marriage. And then the gnosko is like a marriage. It's sharing your life with someone else. It's sharing your life with Christ. Before I got to know my wife, and we met at Horizon, I knew who she was. She was a girl who laughed really loud at everything. And you guys all know what I'm talking about if you've been here long enough. And I like that about her. I like that she, she just lets it go and laughs at everything. That's, that's one of my favorite things. Because um, I am, if you, if you, again, if you know us, <laughs> outgoing wife. It doesn't seem because I'm up here, but... Uh, not inverted, what is it? Introverted husband. I'm the introvert. She is definitely not. But I like that about her. And she was, I knew who she was. I also knew that, yeah, I know her. She studies sign language. I've, I've heard about her. I've had passing conversations with her. Hi, how are you doing? Kind of thing. Uh, she would come and hang out with my friend and a couple other people at his house. And I might get off of work and they'd been watching a movie, have small talk conversation with her. But it kept progressing, okay? There was an acquaintance, there was a passing, I recognized her. Then I got to have more conversations with her to the point where I was became praying, okay, Lord, is this who I'm supposed to marry? Because you need to make it clear because I don't like her like that. I like her, she's a cool person. I don't like her like that yet. And God made it clear that she was and we communicated, we confided and just so you know, not, not that I recommend this for everybody, it was, I think we're supposed to get married. Yeah, I feel that way too. Okay, we're going to get married. And that's really, that's a simplified version of the story, but that's really how it was. It was, our first date was June 16th, 2001, and that was the day we decided we were getting married. Um, and again, I don't necessarily recommend that, but 
uh, both of us had prayed for each other previously. Is this the person I'm supposed to marry? And we had done it without the other's knowledge. But that's how it came about. And now we know each other experientially. And it's not just in a physical sense. It's a deep uh, spiritual, mental sense as well. Because we have conversations with each other. We kick the kids out of the room sometimes. Just because it's none of their business what we talk about. We like to spend time with each other. And that's what gnosko is. It's that personal experience, that relationship with another person. And that's what we're supposed to have with Christ. Not the one-sided prayers that we all do, including me. But we sit there and we listen and we wait for what God has to say to us. And we learn what his heart is, not just on the words on the paper, but as he guides us each day. Now, it's also experiencing how he lived, Christ lived, and what he went through. That's why it says, and the power of his resurrection. Now, knowing Jesus means we know this power now in the present, not just after we die when we see his power. And you can call this resurrection power. And it entails the new life that is given to us at salvation. It's the power to live for Christ in newness of life and not dead in our sins as we were before. Uh, Romans 6, 3, and 4 says it this way. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. One commentator said, he wants to know in an experiential way the power of Christ's resurrection. That is, he wants to experience that same power that raised Christ from the dead, surging through his own being, overcoming sin in his life, and producing the Christian graces. We want God to live through us. We didn't have that power before we were saved. We were trapped. We were slaves to sin. Now, given our life to Christ, we are doulos, or slaves on purpose to Christ, so we can live a, a life that's pleasing to him. Now, the third part of what Paul says and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, Hannah definitely suffered in the first chapter through a lot of uh, mental anguish and insults and, and, the, and the like. And as Christians, we should expect to suffer for the name of Christ. And you're not going to really suffer in this country. Um, not in the sense that Paul is referring to here. Uh, Name-calling is unfortunate, but it's not really a beating and I'm sure that it, it may get to that point in this country the way it's going um, we may be jailed eventually for what we believe but whether we're suffering from name callings or beatings or death this shouldn't surprise us because we are supposed to go through this Christ told us in John fifteen twenty. remember what I told you a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will persecute you also. And I like how Peter puts it the best. In fact, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, if you are a Christian, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And if you've never read the book by Sidney Sheldon, I believe, In His Steps, is a great, great book. But it's based on this verse, Walking in Jesus' Steps, whether that's through loving others or whether it's suffering as he had to suffer. But that's, this is what Hophni and Phineas lacked, a true knowledge 
of God and who he was, a true experience in their life. It was all in the head and not in the heart. Verses 13 through 17. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, Let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, No. Hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So right off the bat, and unless you're familiar with the first five books, this is wrong, uh, especially the part where they're grabbing what they want with a flesh hook. That's not right. None of it is. So with many of the portions of the sacrifices brought to the tabernacle, a portion was given to God first. A portion was given to the priest next, and then a portion was kept back by the one given the offering. And this is what we talked about last week. They'd basically take the portion that was left, and they'd have a barbecue. They'd have a family get-together. Now, the appropriate way, what I just read, is in Leviticus chapter 7. And God took his part. It was the raw with the fat, and it was burned on the altar. Aaron and the priesthood were to receive two parts— the right breast and the right thigh or shoulder of the portion of the animal. Not any part they wanted, the right breast and the right shoulder. And this is not what was happening. And again, the rest of the sacrifice of the peace offering, which was happening, was to be eaten by the person who offered that day. So the three sins of Hophni and Phinehas that are mentioned right here, they didn't take the portion allotted to them by God which was the right breast and the right shoulder. They took whatever the fork brought up for themselves. And the law declared, two, the law declared God was to receive the fat of the sacrificial animal burned on the altar. Eli's sons, before it was even boiled, would demand the fat in any raw they wanted for roasting because, I mean, the fat tastes good. If you're cooking the steak and the fat's melting into the meat, that, that tastes the best. But God is saying, no, with your offering... I want the best. I deserve the best. I'm the one who's holy. So God gets the fat. But Eli and, sorry, not Eli. Eli's sons were saying, no, we want the fat for roasting. We don't want boiled meat. We'll take it on top of that, but we want, we want the good stuff. And the fat, because it was the most luxurious, the best part of the animal, that's why it was given to God. But in their pride, Eli's sons took that portion. Now three... They took it by force. They didn't even let the person offer what God had wanted to offer. They wanted, they took it. They were attempting, and they did succeed in fleecing the flock of God, taking advantage over every single one of them for their own game. But as we see in John 21, a pastor, when Jesus was talking to Peter, a pastor feeds the flock of God. He doesn't take advantage, advantage of them. 
He doesn't look for ways to manipulate them to try to get his paycheck or whatever the case may be. The pastor feeds the flock and God provides for the pastor, or in this case, the priests. So Hophni and Phinehas were following the wrong procedure and taking the wrong portion. And by doing these things, they were treating the Lord with contempt and his sacrifice. But they weren't even doing it themselves. They were having someone else do it. They were sending their servant to do the dirty work. It's kind of like Charles Manson never did any of the killings. He ordered it. This is the same concept. I'm not going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to have someone else do it for me. This is what they were doing. And they would have their servants threaten. And it's almost their way of trying to be above corruption in this matter. Yet the Lord attributes the sin to them, that it was their sin that was great. Now what's interesting, and I like this, is that if the person said, let the fat be burned first to the person who's offering, and then take whatever you want. Now the people knew what was supposed to happen. They, they had some knowledge that it was supposed to be given to God first. Even though the priests were trying to steal it, they were trying to give God the sweet savor, is what it says in Scripture, unto the Lord. They're trying to give it to him. And it's actually literally a sweet savor of rest, because as God the Father looked down and saw the sacrifice, he saw the sacrifice of his son, who came to save us from our sins and give us rest in him. So he's looking, God looks at that sacrifice as representative of Jesus, because all of them represent a different aspect of what Jesus did. And so in reality, Hophni and Phinehas were showing contempt for Christ. And so because of their contempt, men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Now, last week I brought up, I believe it was last week, that there's a guy at my work. He used to go to church, and he got sucked into a church of Christ. And because they kept trying to control him and his money, he got a bad taste in his mouth. So he basically kind of had a little bit of contempt for the church and its practices, even though we're not related to them in any way. Um, the church as a whole will get blamed for the sins of a few. And Hophni and Phinehas, I'm sure they weren't the only wicked ones there, but I'm sure that not all the priests and the Levites who were there were had this heart. Eli was not a perfect father, but he also... Uh, he was not trying to rob the people. However, it was Eli's job as high priest to keep his sons in line when it came to the sacrifices. He should have set things straight. And uh, he didn't. Now, as high priest, like I said, he should have set them straight. Now, every household has a spiritual leader. And every household's spiritual leader should be correcting those in the family to follow God in the way that's appropriate. And not let minor sins fall by the wayside. Not that you need to major in minor things. But if something's a sin, then it needs to be called sin. And no matter what happens in my house at home, not everything is a disciplinary spanking if something happens. A lot of times, because Proverbs says we're teaching our children in the way they should go. It's not we're beating them in the way they should go. 
Discipline happens when there's purposeful disobedience. But a lot of it's teaching. And so nothing in my household goes undone, uh, whether it's my daughter or my three-year-old who's still learning. And Eli, he should have done more. He did not. And it's really not the responsibility of the church or the Sunday school or the Christian school to teach our children. It's the spiritual leader of the house, and usually that's the father. Um, in my case, growing up, it wasn't. It was my mom um, because she was the one who was a Christian. But we need to make sure we're calling sin what it is and correcting those errors. Now, verse 18. Again, here's another contrast. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. So again, a young boy yet ministering faithfully in the midst of this wickedness. And how did Samuel keep himself separate from this? I believe no doubt it was the teaching of his mother from a young age had a very big impact on this. Um, And mothers, and like I told you about mine, have a profound spiritual impact on their children. Paul, when he was speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy, brings up how he witnessed the genuine faith as a child in his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, and how he was taught scripture from a young age. And this heavily influenced Timothy, and I'm sure Samuel as well. And so you never want to underestimate the impact you can have on your child from a young age. You never want to wait till they're 18 to go, oh, this is what we do, this is why we do it. No, it's always, it's always from a young age. And I've told you guys this before, Mariah started memorizing verses from the point she could talk, which was probably very young because she doesn't stop talking now. Um, but she, she memorized, her first verse was, uh, what was it? It was one of the Romans road verses. It was either Romans 3.23 or Romans 5.8 or something like that. It was one of those. And so, but she has memorized from a young age. And you don't just exemplify Christ in the way you talk. It is how you live. Yesterday morning when I was trying to finish up the sermon, um, my son comes out, I think it's like 6.30, my oldest son, and he grabs in his, his Awanas book, which is like a Christian Boy Scout, Girl Scout thing, without me saying anything. And he sits down at the table and he just starts working on it. And I was like, yeah. You know, I didn't have to say anything. He took the initiative on his own. And a lot of times they'll do that. Sometimes they don't. But you know, it's God slowly working in their hearts. Verse 19. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. And this is something only a mother would probably think of. It's motherly practicality. Um, You can probably tell when I bring the kids to church if I've been in charge of clothing them because I don't notice what they're wearing. A lot of times, in fact, I think one time I brought my youngest son to church and he was wearing a pajama shirt and his belly was hanging out. (laughs) I didn't notice. But mothers, they notice those things. And this is Hannah being practical and trying to do something for her son that she doesn't see often. Verse 20 and 21. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. 
And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. The Lord was gracious to Hannah. So in total with Samuel, she had six children. I've tied her. But God is never going to be a debtor to anybody. Hannah could never say to the Lord, I gave you my son, but what did you give me? Because God gave her a lot. She, he blessed her tremendously. So when you give something to the Lord, when you sacrifice it, you're going to get so much more blessing in return than you could have ever given to God. He's just looking for the sacrifice. Verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, this is one of their other sins, and this is kind of the ancient version of the preacher sex scandal, like Jim Baker or something like that. Both of Eli's sons are married, and we see that in later chapters in Samuel, but they're sleeping with the women at the tabernacle. And if Eli had heard, no doubt their wives knew as well. Now, there are two options as to who these women were, and it's, pro- women were, and it's probably both of them. It's possible that the women who were assembled at the door of the tabernacle were workers in some way. In Exodus 38, 8, there are women who are referred to as serving at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They had jobs to do. The second is that these are women who are coming to worship at the tabernacle. And Eli and, not Eli, Hophni and Phinehas are seducing them as well. So most likely it's, it's both of these. But because Eli and, Eli, Hophni and Phinehas are leaders in this church, so to speak. They are going to receive a stricter judgment because they're leading others into sin and leading others astray. So this is their fourth sin mentioned. Verse 23. So Eli said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. And this is a common question of parents to children. Why are you doing this? And... I didn't realize what a pointless question this was until I was reading a parenting book because I remember after I read the the book that my mom would ask me the same question and I was like, I don't know, because I do. Because I wanted to, because it felt like I needed to. But as children, they don't know. They're doing it because that's their nature. We're born into sin and nature sin nature. You want to sin. So this book that Jen and I had read together, it's don't ask your children why they're doing it. Explain to them why they're doing it. And this is how you lead them into the study of the scriptures. You can turn to Romans or a couple other scriptures. And what we do with our kids is we tell them that Because Adam sinned, and I'm giving you a brief summary. Sometimes the lecture goes on a lot longer. Um, Because Adam sinned, we all now are born into that sin. We can't help but sin. We do it naturally. We're very good at it. But once Christ comes into our life, that part of us is now dead. We don't have to anymore. We can ask Christ to walk and live through us. And... Now when I ask my kids that question, I still ask it, but I ask it because I want them to tell me why. And so sometimes my son will be sitting on top of his bunk bed and I'll say, Christian, why are you doing this? 
because I'm a sinner and I can't help it. And so he knows. And when I baptized them a couple weeks ago, the three oldest ones were able to explain to me what baptism was, why they needed it. And so I was like, okay, my youngest daughter, she was like, I don't know, but she'll get it. Um, and I'll probably baptize her again when she understands. But the why question is, is pointless unless they can explain back to you the reason they're doing it. And so he asks this, and he really should know the answer. And we'll get to a little bit more about his parenting in a second. Verse 24 and 25. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may meditate, or I'm sorry, may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now, on the surface, this seems like. God could be being malicious. And it's not really that way. Let's see if I can find where my, I lost where I was. Okay, so at first reading this verse, it would seem like they wanted to repent and listen to the correction of their father, but the Lord prevented it because he wanted them dead. And again, this is not God being malicious and looking forward to the ungodly rotting in hell. This is not the case. Because God himself, according to Hebrews, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it says in Second Peter, he desires everyone to come to repentance. Romans 2.4 says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So God's kindness designed to, is designed to lead us to repentance. Hophni and Phineas were actually allowed to continue as long as they were because of God's patience and kindness. They always had the opportunity to repent, and God always gives the opportunity. So God actually judged Eli's sons in this way. He gave them exactly what they wanted. It says in Romans chapter 1 three different times that when someone doesn't want to repent, he gives them over to what they want. And Eli's sons, they didn't want to. They were given over to what their desires were, which was to reject God. Second uh, Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Acts 11.18 tells us that God grants repentance that leads to life. Hophni and Phinehas, they had no signs or sorrow for their actions, and they didn't want to repent. And so God did not work that repentance in their hearts. They didn't want it. He gave them over instead. But when you read the words, it was God's will to put them to death, what that means is that God desires justice. Justice is just as much a part of God's character as his love is. And God being holy and righteous must be just. And so when it says he desired to kill them, it's really him saying he desires to be just and give them their reward. And he did allow them the time to repent. And he desires justice. And we're going to see that in another chapter, not today. 
verse 26 through 28. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and his people. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to you, to your ancestors' family, when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Now, verse 28 is actually a very good summary of some of the duties of the priesthood in Israel. It says, first of all, that they were to be my priest, which is the Lord's priest. They were the people's priest, but they were to serve the Lord first, not the people's interests. So first and foremost, the job of high priest was to minister to the Lord. And before you can minister to people, you have to minister to the Lord. You have to be in his presence so you can give the people what God wants. The second was to go up to my altar. The priest was to bring forth sacrifices for atonement, for worship. The altar was the place where atoning blood was shed and applied. That blood would cleanse from sin. There there were also to burn incense. The burning of incense was always a picture of prayer because the smoke and the scent of the incense would ascend up to the heavens. The priest was a spiritual leader of the nation who was supposed to lead them in prayer and pray for that nation and its people. It says to wear an ephod before me. The priest was clothed in a specific garment, and it mentions in Exodus 28:2 for glory and beauty. So he was to represent the majesty, dignity, glory, and beauty of God to the people. And then it says all the offerings. The priest was also charged with the responsibility to receive the offerings of God's people and to make good use of them. Now, according to 1 Peter 2.9, it says, You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are a royal priesthood. We ourselves, a father may be priest to the family, but we are a royal priesthood to those who are outside. This is, the jobs mentioned here are our jobs as followers of Christ. And the number one thing is to serve the Lord first so that we can serve others, spending time with him each day, finding out what his will is, where he wants us to do, where he directs us. The second, it says we go up, second, going up to the altar, we bring the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to others who are outside. We give them Christ. We evangelize Christ to the lost. That way we are bringing them to Christ, sacrifice for their sins. The incense. Revelation says our prayers are incense before God in Revelation 5, 8 and 8, 3 and 4. We are to pray for our nation and its people as well. First Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says, I urge then first of all that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Our ephod is to represent Christ in all that we do. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, this is Paul speaking, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And the example of Christ was to love God first and to love others. And he even said, 
And we're all familiar with the verse that says, all will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. So exemplifying Christ is our ephod. Then it says the offering given to the priests, the offering that's given by this body in the tithes and the offerings are here to support the ministries that God has directed the church to. And we at the church strive to be wise with what God has given us and pray for where God directs those monies to go. And Pastor Bill has enlightened you as to where those things go. There's half a dozen different ministries that the church supports. So that is our, that is our mission as priests to this world. Verse 29. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Eli could have very easily blamed his sons. I didn't do it. They're the ones doing it. But he was responsible for his sons in two ways. One, he was their father, and he didn't correct them. Two, he was the high priest. He was their boss. But he's that boss that you can have that's all bark and no bite. He's going to tell you to do something, but you cannot do it. And they're just going to kind of roll over and go, okay. So he, he sinned in two ways. He could have gotten rid of his sons and corrected them the proper way, but he didn't. And so by not correcting them, he was scorning God's sacrifice and he was honoring his sons more than God because he placed his sons above God. Verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. God God did not promise to Eli specifically that his line specifically would be a priest forever. He promised that to Aaron. So what God is going to do is remove Eli's descendants from ever being priests and high priests in Israel. Now, he doesn't fulfill this immediately. He actually waits a couple generations. But... He gives him a sign, which actually I'll read those verses right now. Verses 31 to 34. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die the same day. So a sign to Eli that this prophecy is going to come true is that both his sons will die in the same day, and that happens a few chapters later. Verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointed one always. This prophecy is partially fulfilled in Samuel because he did function as a godly priest, uh, and he did effectively replace the ungodly sons of Eli. It was also partially fulfilled in a priest named Zadok, 
who in the days of Solomon replaced Eli's family in the priesthood. But the promise was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ because he is the priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, according to Hebrews chapter 7. So he is that faithful priest who will always do what is in God the Father's heart and mind. Verse 36. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food. This is a fitting judgment for Eli's family because really what they were doing is stealing from the people. They were stealing the offering, sometimes probably to sell it because they had so much of it. Um, And so instead of receiving priestly portions like they should have been, those portions would be taken away and they would now be beggars. They'd be reduced to begging. So application, further application. One is to know Christ. Make sure that you know Christ, not just in a head knowledge, but in a heart way, in a personal, experiential way where you meet him each day, where you talk to him, and not just talk, but you wait for his response. Make sure that you're walking in the power that he provides, the resurrection power. And be prepared to suffer as he did. And don't count it a strange thing if you do. All who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And unlike Hophni and Phinehas and what Eli promoted, we need to make sure we're worshiping God in the way he desires. Make sure we're following what Acts chapter 2 says. We're following what the early church did. We're following the apostles' doctrine or teaching. We're fellowshipping. We're breaking bread later. We're having a potluck at the park. And make sure spending time in prayer. And also, remember that we're a chosen priesthood. We have five things that God wants us to do. Bring the, lo- bring the lost to the Lamb of God. Pray for everyone. Exemplify Christ in your life. And make sure you're offering God his portion or tithe of what he puts on your heart. Not what anybody tells you. Just what he puts on your heart. No one can judge you in what God what God tells you to do. And just serve in the capacity that he's directed you in. And with that, let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. I do enjoy studying it and just seeing all the unique applications you give us from the Old Testament. It's practical in every way in our life. Lord, help us to exemplify you in all that we do. If anything is going to draw others to you, it's when they look at us and say, that person's different. They're actually living what they say they believe. Lord, help that to be us each and every day. We know we're going to fall short, but we are thankful that your mercies are new every morning, Lord. In Jesus' name.